day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, All right, we'll keep going. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Isn't that a, an amazing story? There's so many different things going on in this story that I think are, are kind of fascinating. We don't have enough time to really explore all of them. But what I want you to see in this is the fact that, that Jesus provides you or anyone hope in evil times because he is willing to confront evil head on. Right? And so what does this story sort of show us about what happens when Jesus confronts evil? And let's see if this is working now. There we go. So the first thing that I think we see from, from verse 6 is that when Jesus confronts evil, evil relents, right? It says, when he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. Now, one of the things that I think is, is pretty fascinating about this passage is, don't you find it interesting that the insight that this evil, this this man who is possessed by all of these demons, that, that man and those demons' insight into who Jesus is is just immediate and perfectly clear. Yet all of the ordinary people are extremely slow to catch on to who he is. 
It's like the demons didn't understand Jesus as like this abstract. It wasn't sort of a principle that they uh, knew about. They understood Jesus as a force to be reckoned with. And, you know, a lot, there'll be some commentaries that will say that these demons were bowing down in worship of Jesus. I, I don't agree with that. I think they were terrified. But they were also struck by, they knew exactly who this was. And just simply by his position and his authority, they were forced to acknowledge who he was. And the thing is, if you look at this just kind of by the numbers, you know, a lot of fight, um, you'll have the tail of the tape, right? You know, in a prize fight where you look at the numbers in terms of the boxer's height, weight, reach, and all that kind of thing. Well, if you look at the numbers in this particular fight, I would not have picked Jesus as the favorite necessarily because you have Jesus and then you have 6,000 demons because that is essentially the number, that's how big a Roman legion was. It was somewhere between five and 6,000 soldiers. And so by saying that his name is Legion, he's giving us more than a clue as to how many demons were actually in this guy. So Jesus is not squaring off like against one measly little demon. He's got all this entire army of demons, of demonic force that is, you know, trying to, uh, that he's waging battle against. And it's interesting too how these demons sort of immediately call out his, they use his name and his title, Son of the Most High God. There's a reason for doing that because in the first century, part of the thinking was that if you knew a person's name and their title, that you could in some small way exercise some measure of control over them. All right? And so by calling them out, by calling Jesus out by who he was, that's kind of perhaps what they were thinking was going to happen. Obviously, it didn't work. We also don't really have any kind of information about this, what this man was like before this all happened to him or what he may have done to have caused this to happen. But I think we can safely assume that in some way he yielded to some sin or he cultivated some kind of sinful practice that gave the demonic an opening to come in. And as a result of doing that, what had happened to him? He lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his friends. He lost his community. lost his home. He lost his decency. He was running around naked. He lost his self-control. He's cutting himself with rocks and screaming. He had no peace. I didn't have really any purpose for even living. And I know that sounds harsh, but in, in a manner of speaking, we put ourselves in the same position today when we yield to sin. But among all of the things that this verse shows us, the one overriding aspect of hope 
is what stands out to me anyway. And that is that the nature or the severity of your sin does not bother Jesus in the slightest. Right? Evil relents when it's brought in front of the power of God. And so it speaks to so many people that <clears throat> I've heard say things over the years like, well, I've, just, there's, I've done too much in my life. You know, there's just, there's too many bad things that I've done. I just, I can't, I can't come to Jesus. You know, or I've just, I've lived, you know, too much of a sinful life, or I'll come, I need to kind of get my act together, and then I'll come to Jesus. This verse right here says, none of that is necessary. You don't have to help Jesus out by getting your life in order before you come, you come and let Jesus put your life in order. Because evil has to relent before it is, as it is brought in front of a greater power, and that greater power is Jesus. The second thing that we notice from this is that darkness has to retreat in the presence of Jesus. Verse 13 says, He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into a lake and were, drawn, were drowned. A lot of questions in that. A lot of questions come to mind. Perhaps you're thinking, gosh, what a waste of good barbecue. <laughs> That's really kind of not culturally relevant at this time, but. It's like, why did the demons want to go in the pigs? Doesn't Jesus care about the financial hardship that he's causing when he's wiping out this entire herd of pigs? Why didn't Jesus simply cast them into the abyss and just be done with it? Well, I, think, I can think of a couple of reasons why I believe that Jesus did what he did. First, I think the demons, I think that when the demons went into the pigs and there was this very visceral reaction, it offered visible proof that this demonized man was free and well, that he would now be accepted back into his community because something dramatic had just happened to those that, that saw. And I think secondly, that it offered visible proof of Jesus' power. And that's what freaked out the townspeople, I think. And it's why they asked him to leave. It was like, it just they weren't so sure about this, and so they're like, we're not, we're not sure we want you to be around. But I think whatever, <coughs> you know, whether those are the right reasons or not, it doesn't so much matter because the one thing that I think is unmistakable is that here is an instance of the kingdom of God breaking into and overcoming the kingdom of darkness. Right? The kingdom of God that Jesus had come to preach and to teach and to demonstrate, he was now demonstrating exactly what that looks like. And in the presence of that light-filled kingdom, darkness can't advance. All it can do is retreat. And I find it <clears throat> incredibly comforting and hopeful 
to realize that not only must evil submit to Jesus, but that it has to- that he has total and complete power over it. So just as knowing the nature or severity of one's sin doesn't bother Jesus, it also brings us hope when we understand that there is no stronghold gripping a person from which Jesus cannot break you free. Darkness retreats when it comes face to face with the presence of a greater power, and that greater power is Jesus. And so if you're watching or if you're here today and you, th- once again, you're thinking along the lines of, well, okay, I, get the, I accept the fact that Jesus will, you know, loves me, but again, I just, the darkness is too dark. I, I, I've just been into too dark a place. I've done too many dark things. This says absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think that's part of the reason why the number of demons is so great in the story. It's saying that nothing that anybody else could do could even remotely compare to how bad this man was and that it, with a word Jesus was able to take care of it. I think the third thing that happens is the transformation occurs. In verse 15 it says, When they came to Jesus, they saw a man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Now stop and think for a moment about the massive transformation that has happened in this man, right? A naked, violent, super strong, raving madman is now sitting there clothed, calm, sane in his right mind. (laughs) The thought that came to my mind was it's like the Incredible Hulk in reverse. Right? You got the big... And he goes to, so it's, and, and what's kind of funny about this is that the neighbors acted like they preferred this rampaging Hulk person to mild-mannered Bruce Banner. It's like, oh, we don't like him. Give us the other guy back. And it also presents this amazingly stark contrast between the rule of Satan and the rule of Jesus. Because what you see here is that this man is once again functioning as an image bearer of God. His humanity has been restored. And again, it presents this very hopeful picture for anybody who reads this or hears about it. For it tells us that no matter how far that you may have gotten away from your own humanity... You've never gone too far for Jesus to bring you back. And so anyone in the midst of whatever sin and filth dominates your life can be transformed and restored to your true identity in Jesus as a son or a daughter of God. And so transformation, amazing transformation results when you encounter Jesus. And finally, when Jesus confronts evil, word spreads. Verse 20 says, So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. 
Now, Decapolis sim simply means 10 cities. There were 10 cities in this little area that had sort of formed an alliance, kind of look out for one another and protect one another, and so that's what the Decapolis is. And it's kind of interesting. The man wants to go with Jesus, right? He says, hey, can I come with you? And Jesus says, no. You need to stay here. And it reminds me a little bit of people that want to run off and do all these missions in foreign countries when Jesus is telling them that their mission field is in their neighborhood, not in Haiti. Now, there's, please understand, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with foreign missions, right? We have missionaries that we support with this church, and I believe people are called to do that. I'm talking more about someone who just decides that, you know, this sounds like a sort of a nice quasi-religious vacation, if you want to think of it that way. Now, not that Haiti would necessarily be that. But you get, the, you get my point, is that I think God is calling us to the mission field right where we live. And that generally ought to be our first and foremost priority. And so Jesus sends him home to his own people, and he gives him some instructions. He says, now go and tell everybody what God has done for you, what the mercy that God has shown you. A couple of things to notice here. Notice, first of all, that this man was not a Bible expert. Couldn't be, right? There wasn't one. Some Old Testament scriptures. But a lot of times that's, a, that's an excuse that folks will give. Well, I don't... I don't really know the Bible that well. Well, neither did he. Notice as well that he received no training. Right? Jesus had the 12 around him all the time, and he was constantly teaching and training them. How long has he been with this guy? Ten minutes? I don't know. But not long. <laughs> kind of, I mean, the way the story reads, this all happens in what appears to be a relatively short period of time. Right? You know, sees him, casts the demons out. The guy runs back, tells the town what happened. They all come. The man's dressed. The townspeople say, we want you to leave. And so he does. So I don't think this is taking place over days. Maybe an hour. I just don't know. But So the man had received no training whatsoever. Just what had happened to him? Jesus says, I want you to go. The other thing to notice is that he didn't tell Jesus that he had to go and pray about it first. And I'm sorry, this is a pet peeve of mine. People use that phrase as a way of saying no and thinking they sound spiritual. I'm not as well saying that we shouldn't pray about things. We're in the midst of what I believe to be something that God has called us to, and that is to become a praying church, a church that values prayer, that practices prayer, that lives by prayer, that makes decisions based on prayer. Okay, so don't hear me saying that it's not a good idea or I'm making fun of people who pray about things. I'm just talking specifically about people who evidently don't, they really ought to just say no, and I wish they would. <laughs> 
rather than say, well, I'll pray about it, and then you've got to chase them down to find out, well, what's the answer to the prayer? You know, are you going to do this thing that I've asked you to do or not? This man didn't have to go and pray about it. He knew what Jesus had done for him, and he was more than willing to serve him and his purposes. And so the conclusion really is that he had none of what we typically think of as being important for missionary work. And yet he essentially became the very first Christian missionary to the Gentiles. And he was very effective. Scripture tells us that he was very effective, that he went and told people and they were all amazed. And maybe he was so effective because he didn't have any of those things. Right? But the one thing that he did have, he had a testimony. He had a testimony that was impossible for someone to refute. Because in his case, he had witnesses to his testimony. Well, if you don't believe me, go ask Fred. Fred was there. Fred knows what I was like before. Fred saw those pigs run down and jump in the lake. But I think more importantly than that was he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt what God had done for him. That God had had this incredible mercy upon him. That God loved him so much that he freed him from the mess that was his life at that point. And isn't that what all of us ought to know? I mean, your, your life doesn't have to be this big of a mess to be thankful for what God has done for you. All you have to do is stop and think of the alternative. Jesus, eternal life in heaven. Not Jesus, eternal life in some place none of us would ever want to be. Does that make you thankful? Does that make you grateful? Doesn't it make sense that we should be as committed to seeing God's word spread as this man was? And just as kind of a side note, I, I think this passage kind of also serves as an example of something that we've taught here for a very long time. And that is that a demonstration of God's power usually accompanies any effective presentation of the good news. Right? There was this amazing example of God's power. And boom, the word just takes off. And we see that over and over again in the book of Acts. Right? God's power is demonstrated. Word spreads. People become Christians as they were later called. And so I think when you are truly grateful for what God has done in your life, God will use you to spread the word. It's a matter of understanding just how grateful that we need, we really all ought to be. So to close this, I just kind of want to repeat something that I said earlier. And I, at this point, I might be speaking more to, to folks that are watching than I am to those that are here because I know everybody here and I kind of know where, you're, where, you're, where you are in your Christian walk. 
And unless you're really, really good at keeping deep, dark secrets, I don't think that anybody here is you know, dealing with this huge demonic issue or some major you know, sin in your life. But if you are, there ought to be hope for you in this passage. If you're watching and you've never given your life to Jesus because of one of those reasons that I mentioned earlier, that you just think that there's, you have too much baggage, that, well, you know, if I had only not done that one thing, it'd be okay, but because I did that one thing, then there's just no way Jesus could ever love me or accept me. I hope you begin to understand that that is completely false. That is, this example demonstrates for us that you cannot get too far away from God. That's the beauty of Jesus. That's what makes him so desirable. Is that he loves us even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's from Romans. Wasn't once we got our act together, Jesus died for us. It's not how it works. It's not how it was designed to work. And I know people think it sounds too good to be true. It's not. It's both. It's good and it's true. And so if you've never, if you've had this mindset in the past, and for whatever reason, maybe today for the first time it's dawning on you that your thinking has been wrong. That maybe there's something to this person, Jesus. Maybe what this guy is saying is actually true. Then I hope that you will take the step. And uh, I wish Pastor Chip were here to uh, make the offering, uh, just to let everybody know he's doing fine. He still has a headache and a fever, but other than that, he seems to be holding his own. And we're all, as I'm praying for him, as I'm sure you are as well, that he has a very speedy recovery and... Uh, that things don't get any worse than they are right now for him. But I know if he were here, what he would say is, there's, there aren't any special words. It's not like some sort of an incantation or a spell or anything like that. It's simply humbling yourself in your spirit and to say, Jesus, I, just, I give myself to you today that I believe that you died and in doing so that you took away all of this gunk that is in me. Even the thing that I thought was so bad that I could never, never approach you, I understand now that I can. That you love me and that you will take it from me. And I pledge to give you my life to become your follower, to read your word and to listen for your voice, to have time with you every day 
so that I can get to know you better and that you can get to know me. And so I hope that you will pray something like that if that is, is you. And if you do, I would love it if you would put a comment on our Facebook page just to let us know that you made that decision today so that we can just continue to pray for you and to celebrate that decision. And I hope someday, if and when all of this virus stuff is finally over with, that you will come and, and join us here and uh, that we can get to meet you in person. And so now we're just going to take a moment to have uh, communion. And so if you uh, will look in front of you, you should be able to find a little cup. If I've been told I had difficulty peeling the top of this off once, and uh, Pastor John told me that if you just kind of use your finger and gently try to roll it back, you can get the top part off better. Or if you uh, are at home and you want and you have some bread and some juice handy, you can celebrate with us as well. We encourage you to do that with whatever you have. Because as so many things are with God, it's more about the heart posture than it is about the elements themselves. Right? If your heart is right, and if you truly are doing this as a way of, of being in communion with God, then you can use things that are, are not the same as what we're using here. So let's pray. Father God, we come now before you. And we, as you have told us to do, we remember that on the night that Jesus was to be betrayed, that he took simple bread from the table of the meal they were eating, the Passover meal. And he offered it up and asked his Father in heaven to bless it. And then he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples that were seated at the table with him. And he said, take this, all of you, and eat, for this is my body given for you. For the forgiveness of your sins. And then... A little bit later on in the meal, he took a cup from the table. And again, he asked his father to bless it. And this too he gave to his disciples, and he said, Take this, all of you, and drink, for this is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant, blood that was shed for you and for many, so that your sins may be forgiven. And now, whenever... You eat of this bread or drink of this cup. Do so and remember me. Father, we thank you for this meal that you have given to us so that we may remember what was done on our behalf. That we may be thankful and as a way of returning our thanks, go and tell others about this amazing love. So bless it now. We consecrate it. 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that it would become for us your body and your blood. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The body of Jesus, given for you. And the blood of Jesus, shed for you. Well, Lord God, thank you once again for this day, for this word that you've given us. I pray that we would all take this to heart. And no matter how big the, the debt was that had to be paid for us, that we will be thankful and that we will go and spread the word of your kingdom to each and every person that you point us towards. So Father, I pray that you would increase our sensitivity to know who to speak to, who to share with, and, and, and more importantly, exactly how to do that. Father, just give us the boldness to open our mouth and then you fill in the rest. And we, we thank you that more and more people will experience the same kind of freedom as this man did in the story today. Imagine how it must have felt after so many years of being chained and mocked and harassed that you completely restored him. That is something that you still do today. And so Lord, for each person that is Within the sound of my voice, I pray that you will restore them to their rightful personage as an image bearer, as a son. And as you do, we will give you honor, we will give you praise, we will give you all of the glory even as you use us to do it, Father, because it is not us doing it, it's you. And so, Father, let us be, as our founder, John Wimber, used to say, let us just be change in your pocket that you spend however you choose to. Now, bless us as we leave this place as we go forth into the world, into whatever mission field you have placed us in. And let us go giving you praise. So we ask all of these things now in the mighty and holy and precious name of Jesus. And God's people together all said, Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful week. God bless you all. 
and I hope to see you here next week where I'm hopeful that we will have live music. So get well, Chip.